Fort Charlotte is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Now offering video visits so you can take control of your orthopedic care from the comfort of your home. Schedule online at orthocarolina.com. Ortho Carolina, you improved. This is Sports Charlotte, the podcast about sports in Charlotte. My name is Herb White, and with us today is filmmaking royalty. And I don't feel any shame in saying that. Uh, the one, the only, Ken Burns. How are you today, Ken? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. I'm uh, looking forward to our conversation. Hey, I am looking forward to it, too, because the subject of your latest effort is a documentary on Muhammad Ali, the greatest of all time, in his own words and the words of others. And... Uh, as a filmmaker, you know, let me just kind of divert a little bit here. Uh, you're a filmmaker, yes, but you're a documentary filmmaker, which to me is a bit different than somebody who puts together movies for theatrical release. Uh, and to me, a documentary has a lot in common with journalism. Uh, do you see it that way, or are you strictly a filmmaker and that tied to journalism just doesn't exist in your view? Well, it's a really excellent question. It goes right to the art of uh, the kind of work we do. First of all, I'm a storyteller. I'm a filmmaker and a storyteller. So in many ways, I obey the laws of storytelling that a feature filmmaker does. Uh, I, I, I had this conversation with Steven Spielberg once on a stage in Washington, D.C., and we were stunned, surprised, delighted to find that we shared so much in common. But the truth is, is that he can make stuff up, and I can't. And while journalists do obey the laws of storytelling in how they structure a piece, they too have certain ethical codes which I share with them. So it, while, while we're st all storytellers, I share a much closer affinity with journalism. Now, um, Philip Graham, who used to own the Washington Post, said that journalism is the rough draft, the first rough draft of history. And I think that's a wonderful way to do it. So history, which is the business that I'm in, or at least the subject of my films, of my stories, American history specifically, um, we've got the luxury of not turning in a rough draft. We have the chance to allow the passage of time to provide us with a great deal of perspective to be able to tell our story with a certain amount of certainty that even in the moment, journalism sometimes has a hard time doing, only because of the quick turnover, the instantaneous dissemination. We, we can allow 25, 30 years to, to uh, pass, and we discover new scholarship, new information, new images, new tape, new you know footage, whatever it might be, and that helps us tell our story. So while there are a lot of wonderful, really, really great uh, Muhammad Ali documentaries, which I think are some of the great documentaries made, no one had yet done one that we were interested in doing, and the we is my oldest daughter, Sarah Burns, and her husband, David McMahon, my son-in-law, and we are the three co-directors of it, in which it had been a comprehensive look from his birth in the 1940s in segregated Jim Crow, Louisville, Kentucky, to his death 
not that many years ago, 2016, five years ago, uh, from Parkinson's disease and spanning all of his magnificent career. He was the greatest. He was right. He said it way early, well before he yet was, but he knew where he was going. He's the greatest athlete of the 20th century, without a doubt. And we could have a barroom argument about whether he's the greatest athlete, period. And I think he probably is. But I think more important, his story, his life is of mythic proportions. And it intersects with all the questions of the last half of the 20th century and questions we're wrestling with still today about race, about faith, about religion, about politics, about war. Uh, about relations between men and women, about Black Lives Matter, about all the things we've we're, we're, that are on the tip of our tongues. And it's so interesting because this is a project we began in 2013, and people, journalists often come up and ask me now, so why Ali now? And I have to tell them that, um, you know, we've been working on this for eight years. And so... It's the fact that when you do history well, it always resonates in the present. Yeah. And so when you you say that Muhammad Ali was the greatest athlete of the 20th century and maybe ever, could you also uh, get into a barroom argument about Muhammad Ali is perhaps the quintessential 20th century American? Oh, I think, you know, you'd have uh, some arguments, but I don't think you necessarily have to have just one. You know what I mean? If you were having a political discussion about presidents or politicians, you'd be hard-pressed not to include Franklin Roosevelt. If you were talking about the music of the 20th century, that great American invention, jazz, you'd have to talk about Louis Armstrong and maybe Duke Ellington. If you were talking about, you know, acting, maybe there would be somebody in that in that field, but I think in the world of sports, without a doubt, he's that quintessential American character. And I think it's because his is the hero's journey. You know, the mythic figures of Greek mythology are are very interesting because they're not perfect. They're they're heroes, but they're not perfect. And they are go through their own struggles and they have weaknesses and strengths. You know, Achilles had his heel and his hubris along with his great powers and his great strengths. And so what you do as mere mortals is watch these negotiations, sometimes wars within people about their uh, strengths and their weaknesses. And this is the same with Muhammad Ali. He's a, a flawed human being, and we don't uh, ever um, shirk from revealing those flaws or emphasizing them at times, but he's also a great heroic figure in that he works on them, as well as being all the other great things. So he's a wonderful lesson uh, to us. And there's there's amazing moment in the film. We think of him as always loud and bragging and that, and, and it's funny and compelling, and he's beautiful as he says, I'm pretty as a girl. And he is. He's a gorgeous specimen. But there are these moments of reflection in our film which we dug deep over the many years of working on it. After the Supreme Court on a technicality uh, liberates him from the five-year prison sentence for uh, refusing the draft during the Vietnam War, um, someone asked him about the, what he thinks about the system now, and he goes, well, I don't know who's going to be assassinated. I don't know who's going to be denied justice or equality. So he's in that moment when he could be gloating and celebrating in a typical Muhammad Ali fashion, he's 
taking into account the 350 years before that moment of all the injustices against black people dating you know first back to you know Emmett Till and uh, you know who's whose murder and torture, uh, his mother courageously had an open casket. He was about the same age as Muhammad Ali. It deeply, deeply affected him seeing those pictures in Jet magazine, but all the way back to 1619. And then he's ranging forward to people he's never heard about or, you know, didn't know about yet, like Rodney King and Trayvon Martin and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. And so in a moment where you'd expect the kind of classic Muhammad Ali brag, we can go deeper in this story and, and show you a much more intelligent, compassionate, thoughtful, self-sacrificing human being. And that's where it really is. At the end of the film, his, his daughter Rashida, who carries a good deal of him in her, uh, pinches her fingers together and says, boxing was just this much. And it was true. He could have, whatever it was he was going to do, he was going to be the best at it. You know, he could have been a simple carpenter, and we know where simple carpenters go uh, in the whole history of humankind. But he was a boxer, but it was more than that. It was carrying a kind of message of love to everybody that was the ultimate um, bout that Muhammad Ali undertook, and he won that and is the greatest in every sense. Now, obviously, you know, maybe I'm Maybe I'm overstepping, but I'm taking a gamble here. I'm guessing that you are a huge sports fan uh, because you have done several documentaries on sports and sports figures. Um, everybody who follows sports has probably watched baseball. Baseball. Uh, well, I am a baseball fan. I'm a huge sports fan. I watch a lot of it. I'm not that much of a boxing fan except really? when boxing intersects with the larger story of America. So I made a film called Unforgivable Blackness about yes, the rise and fall of Jack Johnson, the first African-American heavyweight championship. He was a kind of precursor to Muhammad Ali without the love. You know, he was all for himself, and he was doing things that should have gotten him assassinated or lynched at that time. He's an incredibly bold and defiant human being in, in, in great ways. Mm -hmm. um, but then Muhammad Ali is the 2.0 of that. He has many of the same attributes, many of the same styles, the same speed, the same guile, the same outspokenness. And at the same time, his mission is one of uniting people and bringing them together, despite being, through most of the 60s, one of the most divisive figures in the 60s because of his his choice of faith, because of his changing his name, because of his opposition to the Vietnam War and refusing the draft. But at the end, he becomes the most, when he died, he died the most beloved man on the planet. And that's because a lot of people began to realize that he had taken a principled stand, which is what our country is supposed to be about. A lot of people thought that it suddenly realized, oh, maybe he was right about Vietnam. And that when he lost, he lost graciously and that wasn't expected from somebody that was such a loud mouth bragger you know thing but more importantly he brought pride 
to people. He said, black is beautiful. I am beautiful. You are beautiful. You have the possibility to escape the prison that has been created for you by other people. And that's a great, great story that you have to tell. So we've got a secret weapon in our film, the former heavyweight champion, Michael Bent, who is within, embedded within all the important fights, helping us understand what's called the sweet science, but is actually a very, very elemental, brutal sport. Um, not just the strategy and the tactics, but the psychology of it and the heart in it. And uh, it, it's, a, it's a wonderful way to understand the boxing. So if, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm drawn to boxing, it's fascinating. The third Frazier fight is one of the great, great contests in all of sports. I can't imagine anything better. It was the closest to death Muhammad Ali said he'd ever come. And, um, and that's why for so many people, boxing is a, is a tough sport. Of course, it's been corrupt. It's been controlled by the mob. It's had, you know, its shares of up and downs in popularity. So I'm not so much a boxing fan as I'm interested in the elemental nature of these two nearly naked figures in a, a confined area, just sort of battling it out with wits and guile and speed and cunning and, and timing and, and things like that. It's like, you know, it said the best hitters pick up the rotation and the seams on the baseball coming in. Um, and it's, uh, and you know that the, the timing and the precision of boxing is so great. But I'm more interested in the way those two men, uh, Jack Johnson, but particularly Muhammad Ali, uh, influenced a much larger world than the sport of boxing baseball though uh you know is great if i had a thousand years to live i'd want to do something on football and basketball and things like that but um it's it's uh, sports is a really important way to understand history if you think about it the, the the baseball series was the sequel to our civil war series because the first real progress in civil rights after the Civil War, which ended in 1865, happened on April 15, 1947, when Jack Roosevelt Robinson, the grandson of a slave, made his way to first base at Ebbets Field. I mean, Martin Luther King was a junior at Morehouse College then. Nobody had refused to give up their seat in a bus, though Jackie had done it. Nobody was now refusing to get out of the way at a lunch counter, though Jackie had done that as a little boy. Um, the military wasn't integrated. There was no Brown versus Board of Education. Um, it was... You know, it was the beginning of the modern civil rights era, which makes Jackie Robinson, you know, he may not be the greatest baseball player. We can have that our argument, too, whether it's Babe Ruth or Willie Mays or Hank Aaron or, you know, Ted Williams or, you know, an uninjured Mickey Mantle, whatever it might be. But he's the most important. Jackie Robinson is the most important person in the history of baseball. And remember, every April 15th, every player in the game puts on his number 42, 42. and mm -hmm. they play that game, which is one of the most moving gestures in the history of sports. Yeah. So now, you've done these documentaries. You've been nominated for Academy Awards, uh, Emmys. You know, you, you've done it all. Out of all of the documentaries that you've done, and we're talking, you'd have to go back, what, 30-some years for that? 40, 45. 40. Okay, much, even further. Is there, you know, and I know sometimes it's like asking people to, to pick their favorite child. Do you have a favorite documentary, the one that gave you the biggest rush in terms of 
my that is as close to perfect as I can get. Or you really well, enjoyed it. It is like children. You know, I'm so fortunate to work in public broadcasting. We've enjoyed for decades the support of Bank of America as our sole corporate sponsor and they've, you know, uh, signed up for the for the rest of the twenties at least. And, and we're able to do these projects and, and work on them and have them done. So my cop out to your question would probably be saying what, uh, you know, Duke Ellington said, who's our most prolific and greatest composer in American history. Somebody asked him what his most important composition was, and he said, the one I'm working on now. <laughs> so. Ahmed Ali is great. I'm, I'm the, evan- uh, the evangelist right now talking about how great he is and how excited I am about this film that's coming out on PBS, thanks to Bank of America and our other funders starting September 19th. But I'm also working on three or four other films, like right in the editing room right now, just finishing up one on the life of Benjamin Franklin, who was born, strangely enough, the same day uh, in January that uh, Muhammad Ali was. So there's lots in common there and lots of complications and undertow and contradictions uh, as Muhammad Ali had a lot of them and I'm doing a history of the US and the Holocaust which is very timely I guess with regard to all that's going on in our country now right now anti-immigrant uh, sentiment anti-semitism you know the kind of nativist uh, insanity that produced Adolf Hitler or allowed Adolf Hitler to rise to power in Germany uh, the ways in which the U.S. through its policies helped aid or or keep stuck in Europe uh, the victims of his monstrous regime and some of the people, the heroes who tried their best uh, to get um, people out of there. So it's a you know, there, and we're working on several other films that we're, we're shooting. So, you know, all of that. I wake up every morning and I want to go. I want to make those films better. And I put my head on my pillow at night and I hope that I have made those films better. And that that's the process that I will yield to. Yeah. But I can tell you that I I've done lots of biographies, and and biographies are certainly a a, a building block of all of the big series like baseball and jazz and national parks and uh, and Vietnam and, and, and other films. And I'm as excited about the story of Muhammad Ali as anything that we've, we've ever done. Yeah, and I screened all four parts of it, and it is phenomenal work, i I got to tell you. And, you know, I'm going to cop to it, too. What's my favorite? I mean, I have a favorite, but I love them all. Yep. <laughs> you know, so, you know, but to me, you know, the question that, that I really wanted to ask uh, with this part about Muhammad Ali is uh, because there have been so many documentaries done on him recently and even further back, like When We Were Kings, for instance, uh, was there yep. something in your research or in the production of this documentary that you learned that you did not know? Oh, of course. Of course. In fact, um, in every single production I've ever done, that's been the case. You, you sort of go in, you, you know, in, in, in some films you think, ah, oh, finally a subject I really know a lot about, like baseball or the Vietnam War, because I grew up in that period and, and remember it all really well. And then you find out that you know nothing compared to the subject and that each day is a daily discovery. So yes, I knew the, the you know, the things. I, I make it a point, I, I feel like I really have to tell you this, I make it a, um, uh, a point to 
not look at any other films once I decide to do it. So I remember when we were kings, I remember all the great documentaries. But what I want to do is free to dive deeply and not worry whether it was done well or not done well in another film or done at all. I just want to tell the story that we're trying to do. And as I said, this is a series, right? This is four parts. It's eight hours. It is, we were trying to be comprehensive, not definitive. We hope everybody and their brother and sister wants to make a film about Muhammad Ali and can open up other aspects of his life. But we really wanted to dive deep. And of course, every day we found out new material. Every day over the course of those many years of the production, we were able to find footage and still photographs that had not been seen, had not seen the light of day. I was giving a speech in Missouri um, unrelated to this and and uh, somebody came up and said you know I think my brother has some footage of this or that or some other thing uh, would you be interested about Muhammad Ali and I said you betcha and it turned out to be fantastic footage that we used in the film Rashida his daughter when we sent her the finished film uh, to have her look at it she said she cried and cried and partly because she had never seen some of the footage including this beautiful footage of him talking to her as a little baby and whispering, you know, holding her, cupping her in her hands and said, do you know your daddy's the baddest man in the world, you know? And she just wept, she said. And she also said we'd done a good job because we showed his flaws as well as his, you know, obvious greatness. You know, she's a child of a divorce. She's the, the child of his um, second wife, uh, Belinda, who changed her name to Kalila. And it was rough. And for times they didn't see their dad for long stretches of time. They loved him. And even the ex-wives adored him still. Uh, but he was a philanthropist. He, all, he was, was cheating. So all of that's in it. So every day you learn something. You find a new photograph. You find a new piece of film. And, and the thing is, we don't like write, we don't research for a tiny period of time and then write a script. And then that script is written in stone. We're always researching. We're always writing. And, and inevitably, the last day of editing, we've learned something new and we've complicated the story we told by adding something rather than what editing is always about for us as well, subtracting from the mountain of stuff. So we have eight hours. We have at least 50 times eight hours of material, interviews, still photographs, footage, music, all sorts of stuff that could be, is waiting to go in. And it isn't bad stuff. It's just stuff that doesn't fit into the story that evolves over the course of, in this case, the seven or eight years it took us to make this film. And to me, you know, when you, Talk about the process of putting together a film like this. You know, it seems to me that it's almost like a living, breathing thing. When you start from the first day with the research to the final day when it debuts on on PBS, you know, it seems as if you know there's always something that changes here or a little something there. Is that something that that you find as part of that process as well? That you know, it, you may be thinking that it's going to wind up here, but it you know, give it a couple of hours and it goes someplace else. You know what? That is such an astute comment. Yes. Emphatically, yes. The project takes on a life of its own. Whenever you put two, two images together, you have one thing, you have a second thing. But by putting them together, you created a third thing. So you can exponentially understand the dynamics of a film that might have five or six hundred cuts per episode 
and that also it's you know there's movements within that some of it's footage there's commentary there's music there's sound effects there's information that you're taking in so you have to i think to be as good a filmmaker as you can you have to listen to the material it tells you what it needs not just from that storytelling point of view not just from the ethical journalistic point of view you brought up at the beginning of our conversation but just what it needs as well and and that's a huge part of what we do and in fact we we hire a lot of uh consultants, scholars, and advisors who tell us, you know, oh, too much emphasis here, or you got that date wrong, it wasn't a Tuesday night, it was a Wednesday night, really helpful stuff, so we don't make as many mistakes as, as we would. But we also invite in people who aren't filmmakers and people who aren't experts on it and just watch them watch. It's not a focus group, because we're not, like, polling them. There's not a questionnaire. It's just watching them, see when they fall out, see when they get just physically restless, as as we do too. And I, you know, I wear a lot of hats. I'm a director. I'm a producer. I sometimes write. I'm a cinematographer. I, you know, am I'm the final word in all the editing decisions. But the biggest, I think, thing I do is I am trying to be your representative in the editing room. I'm going, yep, I get that, but I try to erase what I already know and receive this as brand new, as if I was curious and interested, but didn't know a damn thing. Couldn't have told you he was born in Louisville. Didn't know that he'd won the Golden Gloves. Didn't know that he'd won a gold at the Rome Olympia, you know, whatever it is, or that he was going to defeat uh, Sonny Liston. You know, we just treat it as if this is brand new in the moment. I try to put myself in somebody's position who's watching it. And so the decisions that I'm making at the very end of editing are sometimes minuscule. You know, open up between these two words, two frames. Hold that eight frames. Well, two frames is one twelfth of a second. Eight frames is one third of a second. And you get you get the idea that by the end we are massaging in the most intimate way and all of it all of it is in the service of you watching the film and because it's pbs we can take the eight years to do it you know i've raised my own money they are they're generous bank of america is generous the better angels groups of individuals around the country contribute foundations like arthur vining davis and pew charitable trust and the park they're generous but what that generosity does is permit us to say, you know what, we're not going to turn this out in a year and a half. We're going to labor over this. In the case of the Vietnam series, ten and a half years. In the case of the country music, nearly that. In the case of our national parks, ten years. You know, Civil War, five and a half years. I mean, we just need to be um, able to, to, when we let it go, you know, another way to put it is that, like, I get to release a director's cut every single time and the other side of that is that if you don't like any of it it's all my fault i have no one to blame there's no evil suit at the studio or you know at the network that's told me to do this or do that if you don't like it it's all my fault and that's the way i want it to be i want to have a conversation with you in which um i can tell you that one of the principal factors in deciding was what the film told us that it had a life of its own and that we respected it for what it was and it's never what you think it's gonna be it's never exactly what you thought and a lot of that is the material itself the complexity of the subject matter dictates 
different directions that you take or different places that you go. I love it more than anything else. I just love it. You know, next to my kids, the best thing I love doing is making a film better or trying to make a film better. And to that point, it raises another question that I have in terms of uh, the love. And it's obvious that these are labors of love because you let them marinate yeah. for so long. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. but after 45 yeah. years or so of filmmaking, talk about passion. And, and I know in sports, you know, most people who participate in sports, especially at the highest level, they have to have passion. But they can't do it forever. You know, a, a really good uh, career in athletics is, for most folks, a very fleeting th- thing. You know, in the NFL, the average yeah. career is three right. years. You've been at your job for nearly a half century. Talk about the passion yep. that you have today and compare it to way back when in the 70s when you first started out with this. You know, I'm so happy to say it's the same and maybe a little bit less anxious, you know. And when you begin, you just don't know. You have some confidence. You have some certainty. You have perseverance, your willingness to, to do all of that stuff. But you're also kind of worried all the time. And I still worry about the films, but it doesn't have that kind of anxious thing. And so I certainly got the passion. And it's different. You know, there's an athletic there's a physical limitation to what the best athletes can do in sports. But there is, until that passion, that heart disappears, it's, it's as, for as long as you want to do it. And, you know, I'm, I'm 68. I don't feel it. And, you know, people say, well, you know, you could retire. You, what, what more do you have to say? I said, oh, if I were given a thousand years to live, which I won't, I'd never run out of stories in American history. And that's what I feel. And I'm, I'm, you know, I've got, I've got eight projects going on right now. Ten, if you count two projects that don't really exist yet, but we've been filming for them because we hope that they will exist. So, you know, that's exciting. And it's just, you know, I'm working with my oldest daughter, you know. Um, I've got incredible uh, people that I work with, some of whom I've worked with for 40 years, some of whom I've worked with for 30, some for 20. Some just came and are just, have been in the last couple of years so spectacularly indispensable to our process that we hope that, that I'll be able to tell you that they worked for us for 30 years. You know, it's, it's that kind of thing. And it's a collaborative meeting, medium. You never do it alone. That's why some of these times, these conversations, um, are really not disingenuous, but they're, they, they don't show the whole truth. It's like a, it's like an iceberg, you know, I'm the tip of the iceberg. I'm the visible representation of that finished film, but down below are all the editors, all the assistant editors, the apprentices, the interns, the producers, the, the co-producers who are doing the lion's share of the research and my fellow co-directors, Sarah and Dave, Sarah and Dave wrote this. Uh, you know, the, the composers, the, you know, how we all collected the music and added to it or suggested, uh, you know, a piece of music. All of that is just so wonderful. And, and I think just it's really important to hit and re-hit the point about PBS. None of this would have, I could walk into, with my track record, I could walk into a premium cable place or a streaming service and give me the money I'd want to do it. But they wouldn't give me uh, it to just spend ten and a half years mm-hmm. on the Vietnam or seven years on this. They want it, you know, next year or the year after, and and I can't do that. I can't have as deep a dive and include 
all of the depth and the complexity of the issues that we talk about, you know. Um, race, which is one of the central themes of the work that I do, only because it's the central theme of the United States of America, founded on the idea that all men are created equal, but the guy who wrote that phrase owned other human beings and didn't see the hypocrisy or contradiction. So this is something we're dealing with all the time, and, and it's a very complex and nuanced thing. You want to make sure you have people like Gerald Early and Todd Boyd and uh, Walter Mosley and Sherman Jackson, a scholar of Islam, uh, talking about it in addition to two of his daughters and two of his wives and his brother and sports writers who followed him every minute of his career, Robert Lipside and Dave mm -hmm. Kindred and Jerry Eisenberg, and then still more, you know, friends in his corner, hangers on, uh, activists at the same time as him. It's, you just want to have as broad a portrait as you possibly can. And that takes a lot of people, a lot of help, a lot of patience. And uh, PBS is the, you know, I, I, I can't imagine any of my things on anything else but PBS. Yeah. And you know, when you talk about nobody does it alone, just your end credits, <laughs> you know, that alone yeah. is epic. I mean, I'm like, yeah. okay, how much longer is this going to go? <laughs> because you're thinking well, you a know, whole lot of people. The one battle I do have with PBS is that they want those end credits to fly by, obviously, <laughs> and, and, and to, to last because, it, you know, while these films are handmade by a nucleus of 12 or 15 people, you know, hundreds of people have been involved and we want to celebrate their involvement. Uh, you know, the person who does the sound editing or the person who does the mixing or the online or the color correcting or the or the people who generously shared of their archive, hundreds of archives, hundreds of sources uh, of, of imagery, you know, you, you just you don't want to let that go. You want to let people know what that tune was that they liked, you know, mm -hmm. from Beyonce, right? Yeah. Uh, to, to, you know, it might be Otis Redding or it might be a composition by Jaleel Beats or Dave Sieri that, that are original, uh, to this production. Yeah. And, and that's a great point because this series introduces new music. I mean, that, if you're talking about hip hop, I mean, I don't believe I've heard hip hop in any of your previous productions, but it's in Muhammad Ali. Oh, yeah. Ali. Oh, yeah. Central Park. Central Park Five. Okay. Uh, we, you know, we've tended to use music appropriate to the subject matter and to the time period. But then there's also music that is timeless, music that works for information in any era. Not that we bring back hip hop to help Benjamin Franklin, <laughs> right? But but we they have hip hop earlier than hip hop was in uh, existence in, in this world. But there we also have soul music and R&B and, and funk mm -hmm. that we use appropriately for the time, but then use it again. Just like we listen to that old stuff, let's, let's use it. It's working. Let's do it again. Yeah. So, yeah, no, music is, you know, when, my friend Wynn Marsalis, who's, you know, been in a lot of films and composed a lot of music for us, not for this particular one, but he, he always says that music is the art of the invisible. And if you think about it, it's the only art form that's invisible, and it works quicker than any other art form on you. You know, two notes can put you in a place emotionally. Uh, in a way, I suppose two images can, but music's quicker. And, you know, my brother said, who's a good filmmaker too, he said, um, we were in conversation once, and 
he said, you know, all filmmaking aspires to be music and that, you know, when, when films die, they want to, when they go to heaven, they want to be music. And in fact, all of the, 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 the words that I use in the editing room are musical terms. Says, hold that a beat longer. Hold, make that a, make that a whole note, not a half note. Make that a quarter note. P- pick it up. Can we just pick that up? You know, that sort of thing. And so it's all about tempo and pace and rhythm. And, and that's, you know, these are all musical analogies. Yeah. Great story. Great documentary, Muhammad Ali, which debuts next month on PBS. It is the one, the only, Ken Burns, the reason why I watch PBS. <laughs> I'm not going to front. <laughs> That's why I watch it, to check out documentaries by this man who has done all kinds of great things over nearly a half century. Now, I didn't know that part, but. Yeah, still, that's a great track record. And I thank you for taking the time to uh, talk to me today on Sports Charlotte and thank our audience for listening and supporting us throughout all of this and for the entire group back at the studio, back at the office. My name is Herb White with Ken Burns. This is Sports Charlotte. Thanks for listening. Sports Charlotte is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Now offering video visits so you can take control of your orthopedic care from the comfort of your home. Schedule online at orthocarolina.com. Ortho Carolina, you improved.